If you've been listening to my show for a while, you know how I like to talk about a gut biome test. I call it a fancy poop test. It's a fancy name for a poop test. And it's going to tell us what the ecosystem is in your gut. And why that's important is since food's the best medicine, it's going to tell us, here are your superfoods just for you to eat. Here are the foods for you to avoid. And here's everything else. Eat this a lot. Eat this a little. Now, my team has been very busy and they got an amazing deal. For anybody that wants to do this test, you can do it at home. You don't need a doctor's orders. All you have to do is just go to Viome, V as in Victor, I-O-M as in Mary, E.com, Viome.com. And at checkout, use the secret code, Julie Ryan, and you'll get more than 50% off. Don't put any spaces in there, just Julie Ryan. It's an amazing test. It's going to give you tons of information. I've done it several times myself, and you're going to be thrilled with the information you get because it'll give you a program just for you. Give it a whirl. Julie Ryan, noted psychic and medical intuitive, is ready to answer your personal questions, even those you never knew you could ask. For more than 25 years, as she developed and refined her intuitive skills, Julie used her knowledge as a successful inventor and businesswoman to help others. Now, she wants to help you to grow, heal, and get the answers you've been longing to hear. Do you have a question for someone who's transitioned? Do you have a medical issue? What about your pet's health or behavior? Perhaps you have a loved one who's close to death and you'd like to know what's happening. Are you on the path to fulfill your life's purpose? No matter where you are in the world, take a journey to the other side and ask Julie Ryan. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Ask Julie Ryan Show. I'm Julie, your host, and I'm so delighted you could join us this week. My intention in doing this show is to provide information, insight, and comfort to people all around the world by helping to answer life's unanswerable questions. And do I have a treat for you this week? We have the world-famous Barbara Carnes on with us, Nurse Barbara Carnes. And uh, Barbara, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for inviting me. I think we'll have an interesting, an interesting conversation. Absolutely. Barbara, everybody is a world-renowned hospice nurse and educator. And, you know, that's one of my favorite topics is, is what happens as we're dying. And Barbara, I think there's a lot of information out there about what happens in the afterlife, the phases of grief things like that, near-death experiences, but not so much information about what happens as people are dying. And I find that that most people are really afraid of what's going on, not only with their loved ones, but also, oh my God, I'm going to be in that position someday. And it really is something that causes fear and it's unnecessary. So that's why I so appreciate the work that you do and your willingness to have these conversations to help help get rid of this fear because as you so eloquently say often that it information helps negate the fear absolutely knowledge reduces fear and as you point out um dying is an unknown we don't know really what's going to happen. And anytime we face the unknown, we're going to be at least nervous, if not downright terrified. Yeah, good point. Good point. Okay, so everybody, I need to read you her bio. 
And, and I, I tried to shorten it a little cause it's really long Yeah, because you've, you, you've accomplished a lot of amazing things in your life, girl, but it's worth reading because it's so impressive. Okay. Barbara is an internationally recognized author, speaker, thought leader, and expert on end of life care and the dynamics of dying. I'd never heard it phrased that way, but I love it. The dynamics of dying. Barbara was recognized in 2018 as a hospice innovator by the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization and was named the 2015 International Humanitarian Woman of the Year by the World Humanitarian Awards. I feel like I you know, need to have a palm branch and if I was close by you, I would be fanning you with a palm branch. Barbara's experience as a hospice care provider at the bedside of hundreds of people and as an administrator overseeing the care of thousands led to the 1985 publication of Gone From My Sight, The Dying Experience, affectionately referred to in the industry as the Little Blue Hospice Book. Gone From My Sight has sold over 30 million copies worldwide. Holy mackerel, girl. That's a bunch of copies. Is published in 12 languages and remains the leading resource on the market today, educating families on the signs of approaching death. In 2015, Barbara's film, New Rules for End-of-Life Care, was featured in film festivals around the world and was the recipient of 10 prestigious film awards. I can go on and on and on, but those are the highlights. My goodness. What do you do in your spare time? Do you have any spare time? Well, COVID has kind of put me in the house, so I have lots of spare time to to write and think and do all kinds of things. Because people stopped dying during COVID? How come you're not, why are you not working? Actually, I, I am working for home. Before COVID, I was on the road. I was I'm on kidding. the road every month. Um, but since COVID, I have been doing Zooms with hospices, with community agencies, with, with hospitals on end-of-life issues. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly COVID has brought it out of the unspeak, has brought death and dying into our faces, literally pushed into our faces. And people are are having to talk about and deal with dying and death in a way that uh, Americans haven't done for a long time. So well, that, not only that, that but <clears throat> I think, too, there's so much guilt during this COVID last couple of years of family members who couldn't be with their loved ones in the hospital or in a skilled care facility. And, and they're just agonizing over the guilt that their loved one died alone. And are you finding that as well? Oh, it's huge. And so what I recommend is um, explaining that thoughts are things, that thoughts are energy. And yes, it would be wonderful to be physically there at the bedside. But when you can't, then I recommend that you sit down in your favorite recliner at home and close your eyes and visualize your loved one um, in bed, 
asleep. And in your mind's eye, you go to the bed and do what your heart tells you. That may be crawl in bed with them and hold them. It may be just sit on the bed and hold their hand, whatever your heart says, and then start talking in your mind to your loved one and say whatever you would say and more if you were there. Thoughts are things. And so at some point, you will have said everything that your heart needs to say. And then I recommend that you stay there a little bit longer. And at some point, you'll know that you can get up and you can say goodbye and you can leave and get out of your recliner and go on about your business. Knowing that any time you want to touch this loved one, even though you physically can't be there, you can sit down in your favorite recliner and go to them in your heart. So that's what I've been offering to people everywhere, anyone who will listen. Um, like I said, it's not, it doesn't take the place of being there, but when we can't be, it, it's powerful. That's profound. You're singing my language here. You're, you're speaking my language and it's telepathic communication is what you're advocating. And cultures have done this since the beginning of time. Certainly the indigenous cultures in places like Australia, the Aboriginal people and others have communicated telepathically across vast distances, thousands of miles in some instances. And you're absolutely right. And thoughts are energy. And every thought has its own frequency and every spirit has their own frequency too, whether it's connected to a body or not. And in order to connect with your loved one, all you have to do is think of them because our heads are big satellite dishes. They receive and transmit frequencies, but you are, you are absolutely correct. I have done that many times and I love how you put that. And I love how you offer that. How's it received by family members? Oh, very, very well, uh, because they're so frustrated. Their heart is just screaming that they can't be there. And this gives them an alternative. It gives them something they can do. And that sense of helplessness just adds to our frustration and our fears and all of our emotions. And so being able to do something is really um, very, very helpful. Absolutely. My goodness. Wow. All right. How'd you get into this? Are you the daughter of an undertaker? I mean, how, how do you, how do you go to nursing school and you come out and you think, okay, I'm going to work in hospice. What's the, what's your life's path? How did you get to where you are today? Okay. Well, I graduated from nursing school in 1962. I was 21 years old. And when I graduated, I thought, oh, my God, I've made a huge mistake. I should have never been a nurse. I should have been a social worker. And so I did not do any nursing at all. I raised a family. And in the 70s, during that, when you're 30 years old and you're saying, what is life about you know, and I'm exploring the meaning of everything. Um, 
at that time, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in Chicago came forward and said, Americans are not treating their dying well at all. And at the same time, Cicely Saunders in England came forward and with the hospice philosophy in that um, we will help people live the best they can. And this philosophy of quality of living until you are dead. Um, so those two things fit together with the belief system that I had acquired over the years. And I thought, I can work with dying. I have a belief system in, in there's more to life than just the physical, and I can do this work. And so at that time, I'm going to show you some synchronicity here. At, at that time, we moved from Omaha to Kansas City. And I had taken a refresher course in nursing because I figured that was the door for me to get into to work with end of life. Well, I wanted to meet people. So I went to a Unitarian church who offered a world's religion class. And part of the class was to introduce yourself around this circle of people and tell them a little bit about yourself. And I said, I was interested in going to work for a hospice once I got settled. Here's the synchronicity. There, one of the participants in the group was the volunteer coordinator for the oldest hospice in Kansas City. And he said, afterwards, we're hiring our first ever RN, and I think you should interview for the job. And I said, oh, you know, I, I really couldn't interview for this nursing position, but I'll tell you what, I would volunteer for you. You hire a nurse, and this was before Medicare. This is when hospice was brand, brand new. And so you didn't really even know what you were doing. Um, so I said, you hire a nurse. I will volunteer 20 hours a week. Now, I'd have paid him to work with him, but he didn't know that. So I volunteered 20 hours a week with the nurse they hired, and after four months, they brought me on salary and I became a full-time hospice nurse, ended up being the director of that agency um, and then moved on to a different, different agency. But it, it was interesting how it all just fell into place. I didn't really have to do anything. It's well, and that's how it works when you, I, I live in the deep south in the United States. And we'll say down here, you are being led. You are being led. That's how spirit works. You're led. There are synchronicities. And there's no coincidence in life ever. We're all led. And when when we're doing what we're being led to do, it is easy. We don't have to effort and struggle. It really does just flow. And and you obviously were being led to be in this industry. It's interesting to me, I guess I hadn't thought about it before that hospice really is that new of a concept. 
because I guess before it was primarily the families that just took care of their dying loved ones. I know people had wakes, they used to call them wakes or viewings in the home, right? Mm -hmm. For when somebody died. Well, and it used used to be that fam grandma died at home right. in the upstairs bedroom and family was there and then they had their wake and their visitation um and then dying moved into the hospital mm-hmm. and families weren't there and the person was at the end of the hall and died alone mm-hmm. and it wasn't until hospice Elizabeth and, and Dame Cicely Saunders opened the public eye to how we were dealing with dying. The thing is, because we went, we we went from being there to being not being there to seeing that the medical profession was supposed to fix you. And so death was the enemy. And you've got all of this. No one really knew how people died. They didn't know, um, just they were scared. And so, um, but no one really knew. And it was the five years that I was a primary care nurse working with families in the home. And our goal was to be with the family and the patient at the moment of death. That's where we learned how people died, that there's a process to it, that there's only two ways to die and that's gradual or fast. And gradual death has a process. Today, you can go to any college in the country and take classes on how people die, on the dynamics of dying. But that knowledge came from those of us that worked the front line, that were there the minutes and hours as death happened. We, our patients were our classroom. And then we have now translated that knowledge into an education system of how we teach. Where was the disconnect? And and it, I get that when people were dying more commonly in hospitals, but was the disconnect that the people that had been with their loved ones throughout the generations, they were dying and they were dying alone. And so their children weren't necessarily with them. So where was the break in that? Because certainly families of all cultures have been involved in the dying process. And then it seems like all of a sudden there was an interruption. Chris Kerr, Dr. Chris Kerr, and I know you know who he is. He's a head of a big hospice organization in Buffalo, New York, and he wrote a book called Death is But a Dream. And he he calls end of life care in the hospital an assembly line of the absurd, <laughs> which I think is such a great, such a great definition. But where was the split? Where, where, where did that cliff drop off? And then we lost that. And then you had to come back up on the other side of the gully to pick up where families had left off. I think when when hospitals um, 
let me reword that. I think it was when the medical establishment reached a point in its proficiency that we expect doctors to fix us and you fix them with treatment and it's done in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And when the person who was ill and dying left the home, I think that's when we lost that disconnect, that connection that we had to people are born, they experience and they die. That is the normal progression. But medicine, which treats diseases, not people, but diseases that people have, when the focus became on disease, the disconnect was that everybody dies. And so death was the failure of the medical establishment. And I think that's when we lost the ability to see that dying is a part of living. Well, and medical schools don't teach their doctors about dying or what to expect. And and I agree with you, it is a failure and we need to really talk to the doctors when our loved ones in the hospital and say, okay, you know, when is it time to stop? Like Chris Kerr says, the assembly line of the absurd. Why are you, why are you going to put your, your loved one through this to try and save them when obviously their body is shutting down. And I think, I think it's a fear thing on the doctor's part too. They don't want to deal with it. Well, we've also become a litigious society. True. And so they're covering, covering their tush. Uh, a lot of the time. Do you think when that disconnect happened, Barbara, that that's when really the fear of dying came into the population as a whole, especially in our Western culture? It doesn't seem to be quite as profound in, in other cultures as it is in the Western culture. Do you find that to be the case? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it is that disconnect. Um, And then add television in the movies and all the violence you see and television in the movies have created our role models for how someone dies. And that's not how people die, but that's become our role models. Either you're chopped up in little pieces or you say something very profound and then take a gasp and and you're dead. And so when our families are at the bedside watching the labor of dying, and there is a labor to getting out of our body, we work to get out of our body, just like that little chicken works to get out of its shell, because that's what we're doing. We're working to get out of our shell. That's a labor. But because we don't have role models, we, the watchers, think something pathological is happening. We think it's bad. This is awful. When it's very, very sad, but there is a natural way that the driver gets out of this vehicle that we call a body. And that's what I run around trying to teach is Um, that there's a process and this is normal and this is how it happens. 
and nothing bad is happening. Well, and then you add to that all of the cultures and religions that teach people when you die, well, it's going to be a crapshoot whether you fly or fry. You know, are you going to go to heaven? Or are you going to burn for eternity? And I find that there's a lot of fear, especially with people who've been really in, inundated in that philosophy. Certainly my father was very worried about that. Not that he, not that he was a criminal or anything. He wasn't, but he was in the seminary at the Vatican for six years, went, went to the seminary on the GI bill after world war II. America paid for his seminary and then left six months before he was to be ordained a priest. But he drank the serious Kool-Aid, you know, in Rome, in, at the Gregorian University where saints and all these St. Thomas Aquinas and all these, you know, renowned saints and popes and all these guys had been educated. And he was so afraid that he wasn't going to go to heaven. And it was because of what he'd been taught. And I find that that's, that's starting to leave some depending on the age of the person who's dying. Are you finding that as well? I'm not really finding that it's leaving, but I can certainly tell you stories on and on of, of um, the fear that people bring to their death dying bed uh, because they feel they have not lived up to their religion's expectations of entry into heaven. And um, we have limited control over the time that we die and fear will lock us in our body and make our labor longer because we're afraid of what we're going to see when our body ceases to be. Um, you know, uh, can I tell you a story? Oh, please. Yes. Okay. I took care of probably the most religious person I've ever met. Um, and, you know, she had the 700 Club on the TV at the foot of the bed. She had gospel music on the radio that was also at the foot of the bed. She read her Bible every day. That was on the nightstand. And the church ladies came every day to pray with her. The minister came several times a week. And she didn't die and didn't die and didn't die. And labor was going on and on. And at one point, she said to me, Barbara, I've done something in my life that I know God will never forgive me for. And so I said, may I tell this to your minister and have him talk to you about this? And she said, sure. And he did. He came and talked to her and no, she wasn't buying it. Now, God couldn't forgive her. So I said, can our hospice chaplain come and talk to you? And she said, sure. And Mary came and talked to her and no, she wasn't buying it. I believe that at some point God said, Mary, I'm tired of waiting for you and pulled her out because she was never going to let go of that physical body um, willingly or, or even unwillingly. I mean, it was, and it was the fear of what she was going to find on the other side. And that's so sad. 
Well, and sometimes I I have found that too, working with literally hundreds of families throughout the years in the work that I do, Barbara, where sometimes it's the people that you least expect are going to be struggling with it. It's the people that seem to have a hotline to heaven and are so devout and so um, spiritual that they're just going, it's, it's like all that goes out the window and the human fear comes in of what, it's almost like the programming's in there and you can't get a new software program in there because the original one's so, so, um, well, you know, life, life is full of positives and negatives and learning experiences. There's no perfect, I'm all perfectly good life. You know, it's a it's a school. We're here to learn. And in learning, um, there's ups and downs. And yet we tend to concentrate on the difficult learning experiences, those that we think we didn't succeed at and carry those with us rather than looking at all the good we've done and all the things we have been successful in. Well, I think it's because we're all hardwired for fear. We're all waiting for that saber-toothed tiger to come eat us for lunch, although he's been gone for a really long time Mm -hmm. with that. What exactly is hospice for those that are listening and watching that know the term, but they don't know what all it really entails? And I find that's very common. Most people aren't really clear what exactly hospice is. So can you enlighten us, please? I would say... Well, first off, hospice is a healthcare um, agency that is uh, reimbursed by Medicare and Medicaid and most insurance companies. It is a, a, a care that is given to people that their physician has said, I can't fix you. You know, we've done everything we can do and medical can't fix you. And you have to have a time frame, a prognosis of six months or less, which is really difficult to come up with. You can't put a number on how long someone has to live. You can look at someone and say, I don't think they're gonna be here next year at this time, but you can't say someone has six months or three weeks or 24 hours because there's so many dynamics that go into dying, our fears, our social interactions, so much that you can't be specific. Anyway, hospice says a doctor has to say you have six months or less to live. Then hospice will bring in nurses, home health aides, physical therapists, social workers, chaplains, occupational therapists. They'll provide oxygen if needed. They'll provide medical equipment, wheelchairs, hospital beds, all at no charge because they will bill Medicare. And they also have volunteers that will come in and um, support the family. The hospice philosophy is we're not just taking care of the patient, we're taking care of the family as well. And so it is a group effort 
taking care of a patient and the family. Um, There are hospices literally all over the world. Um, All you have to do is look in, you know, look them up on Google and you'll find not just one hospice in your town or city, but you'll probably find several. What do the volunteers do to help take care of the family? What all does that entail? The volunteers will um, often patient sit. Now they can't do medical anything, but they can come in and sit with the patient if it's months before death. And that's one of the things hospice tends to get their referrals too late um, in that when you get a referral and the person's in labor of dying, which is one to three weeks before death, that patient is so removed from their physical body that what hospice is doing is supporting the family and and teaching the family what's happening and supporting and guiding them. Um, If you have the referral months before death, then the hospice team can help the person live the best they can within the confines that their body and disease has put them in. So the volunteers in the months before death will come in and visit with the patient so that the primary caregiver can go to the grocery store or maybe just go to bed, you know. Um, And then as death gets closer, then the volunteers will come and stay and maybe just patient sit, just be there so that the primary caregiver can can rest um, or, again, go to the store or maybe go to church on Sunday. Um, so the volunteers, the support. Volunteers can also work um, in community education And in some hospices, they can work in the office and answer phones or file paper. A lot of that depends upon how creative the hospice is. They also, volunteers also often work with uh, the bereavement support because part of hospice is following the family for a year following the death and offering support groups um, where they can come together, COVID messed that up, but hopefully we can get back to that where you can come together and uh, with people that understand what you're feeling and what you're thinking. Amazing, I didn't know that. I didn't know that the volunteers could do all of those things uh, in the home. I I guess I I hadn't experienced that. I've only experienced hospice in an in inpatient facility and also in the hospital. And I think that's rolls into my next question is, first of all, how do you know when it's time? And do you have to have a doctor refer you? Does that differ from state to state? Or is that just a general thing that you got to have in order for insurance to pick it up? You have to have a doctor's order. Um, Now you as a, you know, let's say my husband has a life threatening illness. I can call a hospice and say, I'm interested in hospice. Would you have come someone come out and talk to me? 
and the doctors have said, you know, they're having a hard time, or I, I can say, I think they're having a hard time, that hospice can call the physician and say, you know, Mrs. Carnes called me and I visited and I'd like to know if you can make a hospice referral. But most of the time, it's the doctor that will say, you know, um, we really have done all that we can. And hopefully they have recommended palliative care, which is the pre-runner to hospice. And then um, have say to the family, I, I think you should consider hospice. I do have clients and have had over the years that have told me that their doctors won't sign off on hospice. And, and so I say, well, call the hospice facility that you choose and tell them what's going on. And I feel certain that they have connections with doctors that they can get referrals from so that all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted so that the insurance covers it. Am I correct in that? You are. You are. Okay. Um, Absolutely. Okay. And then how is it decided if if the loved one needs to stay in the hospital and get hospice care in the hospital versus being in an inpatient facility versus being in the home? Does the family decide that? Is that just predicated on how much care that patient's going to need? How's all that work? Well, let's start with hospitals in that hospices, hospitals are not geared for people to stay in for any length of time. Their modus operandi is let's do the treatments, let's do what we have to, and then get you out of here. Now, where you go can be a rehab facility, or it can be a nursing facility, or it can be home. Hospice will go into a nursing facility. There are also hospice houses um, which we can talk about, or you can go home. If you go into a nursing facility, whether it's a Medicaid facility or a private pay facility, hospice will go in and provide the same services that they would provide if you were at home. And they will uh, also come into your home but they're really not going to go into a hospital because the hospital um, isn't geared for long-term even, you know, I'll reword and say, if the hospital thinks the person is going to die within a couple of days, they may keep them in the hospital. And a lot of hospitals have hospices that are theirs uh, or that they work with and they would bring the hospice personnel in to support the family. A lot of hospices now have their own hospice house. Um, and it's, there, there's a lot of, for me, confusion with that because most of the hospice houses um, bill Medicare for inpatient as if they were in a hospital. And those, are, those payment days are limited. 
And so that's just seven to 10 days where what I would like to see is that hospice houses were so that if you were um, weeks to, to weeks before death, when labor is beginning, that you could go into a hospice house and stay. And if you rallied, then you could still stay. Uh, but that generally is not the case anymore. Um, most of them are just related to um, inpatient reimbursement. Now that I've said that, we'll probably get 25 phone calls saying, but my hospice. So there are some out there. My mother died in a hospice house in Columbus, Ohio. And oh, the care she got was just superb. Just superb. It's like being at home. The whole, the hospice house concept is your, this is your home. And you can have your dog and your cat and the family can spend the night. You can go to the kitchen and make cookies. And, you know, this is your home for the time. And yet the full physical responsibility for the care is not on the family. Mm -hmm. It is on the hospice house caregivers. And so it frees that family up to experience the moments, the, the days, the weeks in the fullness without worrying, am I doing it right? Um, and so it, it's a wonderful concept. I just wish it were a little broader. I think a lot of people, it's been my experience too, that a lot of people only think of hospice, and you alluded to this earlier, that it's, they call in the last week or the last few days, and they don't understand that it can be six months. And when I talk to people and I say, well, have you considered getting hospice involved, or at least having a conversation with a hospice professional? And they'll say, oh, no, it's not time for hospice yet. And I'll say, well... It, it may be. It's worth at least exploring. How can we know what's the best agency for our loved one? What, what are some of the general things that you would recommend people look for in agencies? And I know some are private, some are connected with hospitals, all of that. So how what are the what are the variables that you would say would be an optimal experience that somebody could have as they're talking with multiple agencies? What, what, what are the things that they can check off their list and say, okay, this feels like it's a fit? And, and definitely, they, you should call several and, and compare notes because they're different. They're, they're, they are different. Um, the key thing that I think is important and is becoming less and less um, is you want the same nurse, the same home health aide, the same social worker, the same chaplain. You don't, so you say, do you have primary care nursing and will I get the same home health aide, nurse, social worker, and chaplain? Because a lot of hospices 
every visit, there's someone else, there's a different person. How can you develop a relationship and a trust if it is a different person every time? You can't. And part of end of life care is having that trust that these this person has gotten to know me and can support me in this time. And you don't get that with a stranger that comes every time just because she's got an RN or a CNA after her or a social work LPN after her name uh, or his name. So to me, that's the most important question. Do you have primary care nursing? If you're interested in a hospice house and you're saying, you know, I I don't want dad to die at home. I I don't want him to die in my house. I want him to be someplace else. That can be a nursing facility, but you want to ask the hospice if they have a hospice house, how long can someone stay? Is it just the seven to 10 days or could they stay for a month or six weeks, you know, how long can they stay? And if they can stay a month, you know, what's what's the private pay and how much will it cost? So I think that's important also. Um, to me, those are the two primary issues um, in selecting a hospice. How often do the hospice staff members visit the patient, whether it be in a nursing facility or in a home? What, what's, a, what's a norm for people to be able to expect? I can give you what I expect, but I will also say that the visits are getting fewer and further between than what I think is appropriate. Um, And so that is also a question you can ask. I can say what I what I think is appropriate. And that is that if someone comes on hospice, then and you think they have months to live, then you visit once a week. Anyone who says, well, we're just going to visit once a month then that tells me this person isn't appropriate for hospice in the first place. Um, Even every two weeks, I would question um, if that's really um, too far. I think once a week, no matter what you think the prognosis is, because remember, it's supposed to be six months, and you're looking in that six-month time frame to develop a relationship and a trust with the patient, the family, and the caregivers, and the professionals, nurses, social workers, home health aides. And you can't develop a relationship if someone's coming in once a month or coming in even every two weeks. So if you think it's months, then I think it should be once a week. If you think they have begun labor, which is one to three weeks before death, then I would say you visit at least twice a week and you may, is that 
increase that to three times a week. And if you think a person is actively dying, which is hours to days, then you visit every day. And you may visit first thing in the morning and last thing in the late afternoon before you go home. It may be twice a day if that person is that eminent. Now, my goal was always to be with the family at the moment of death, but that doesn't happen anymore, very rarely. And so, um, the, you know, that's why I think you visit twice a day if you think that they're, they're actively dying. And then the family is to call the hospice when the death occurs. But the point is every visit, it is more about the teaching and the support that that nurse or social worker or home health aide is giving the family and the patient than it is about um, the... Most of us have busy lives and we know that we're not getting the nutrients and the vitamins and the minerals that we need so I'm always looking for easy ways to ingest them. I found one, it's called Beam Minerals. And what I find is that most of us don't get enough potassium, magnesium, and calcium. Those are the big three. And so what Beam Minerals does is it's put all these minerals in a liquid form that's easy to drink because it tastes like water. It's got all these important minerals and a whole bunch of other ones. and I find that they're really helpful. They save me time. They're easy to take. And I suggest that you give them a try. Go to Beam Minerals, B as in boy, E-A-M, minerals, plural, dot com, and use the code Julie Ryan, all together, no space, at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your order. That's Beam Minerals, B-E-A-M, minerals.com and use Julie Ryan at checkout and you'll get a 20% discount. Give it a try and let me know what you think. The time, the, the visit itself, it's more about the support and the teaching than what they're actually doing with their hands. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I, and I think it's, it's so important to your point and your book, you know, you're the, your book's the Bible of hospice experiences. It's so important to get that information out to the family because they're, they're just kind of flailing blindly in this and they don't know Like back to that disconnect. It's like that generation that knew how this worked is gone. Mm-hmm. And then we had a break and now we're we're facing it ourselves. Can you address also what is when you refer to, and I've never heard it referred to as the labor of dying. I love that. I it, like birthing labor, dying labor. It it's so perfect as a an adjective to describe what happens. Can you go through what people can expect? during the labor of dying in case they don't know, most people don't, I think is probably the case, number one. And number two, if they haven't called in hospice or help, what what happens in the labor of dying? And then how do we know when somebody 
transitions from the labor of dying into what you're calling active dying. Okay. In the months before death, a person looks sick. They don't look like they're dying. There comes a point where you walk into a room and you go, oh my gosh, this is different. Dad's different. The key thing is dad sleeping with his eyes partially open. Takes energy to keep your eyes shut. Takes energy to hold them wide open. Their eyelids are kind of at half mast. Maybe one eye open, one eye closed. And they're, so they're, they're lying there. They may be, um, have random hand movements where they're picking the air. They're working their sheet. Their bed clothes, just kind of random hand movements. You're watching them with their eyes partially open, breathing, and they stop breathing. And you think, oh my gosh, he's dead. And then he starts breathing again. I call it start and stop breathing. That's another sign that says labor has begun. And sometimes you can talk to them and they're perfectly clear and rational. And other times you look them in the eye and you just know nobody's home, you know. So they're, they're in and out of in touch with reality. This is when they're talking to and about people that have already died or people that aren't there. Um, all of these things tell me that labor has begun. And, you know, we go through labor, as you said, to get into this world, and we go through labor to leave it. And that labor takes one to three weeks. When a person is days to hours before death, things change. And now um, they're cold to the touch. Their hands, their feet, their knees are a bluish purple color. Um, they're basically non-responsive. You can talk to them, call their names, and they may be murmuring and talking, but they're not responding to the world around them. If you're taking blood pressures, their blood pressure is down you know, when when a nursing facility would call me and say, oh, Mrs. Smith is dying. First thing I'd say is, what's her blood pressure? Well, it's it's 90 over 60. And I'd say she's not dying right now because it'll be 60 over 40. Or maybe you can't get a blood pressure. You may be able to get their pulse, but it's so fast you can't even count it. These are actively dying. There may be congestion, depending upon how hydrated or dehydrated a person is. Um, they may be peeing and pooping the bed because they're just letting go. Um, and that's the actual labor of dying. What tells me that a person is minutes to hours from death? is that their breathing gets slower and slower 
and they start breathing like a little fish breathes. Just think of a fish, how it opens and closes its mouth, that kind of gapy open and close. That's how they're breathing. And it gets slower and slower. And then the scary part is you're all around the bed and you're watching your loved one who's non-responsive, breathing like a little fish. And all of a sudden, maybe they'll open their eyes real wide and flip an arm, or maybe they'll grimace and frown. I've seen silent screams, you know, on their face. And then one or two or three long spaced out breaths and they're gone. That you that grimace, that frown, that's the actual release when the driver gets out of the car. Um, that disconnect, um, the birth has occurred. My mother, when she was dying, uh, was staring off into space, I would say, the last not even 24 hours. And it was like she was looking past us. She couldn't focus. And the nurses said that that was normal. The other thing was, I hear, and I hear this a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, of when I, and I've heard this from nurses who are not hospice nurses, that when somebody is struggling to breathe at the end, that they're not medicated well enough. What do you have to say about that? Well, it doesn't surprise me that hospital nurses would say that because they're geared to fixing things. Um, and so they're looking at how can I fix this? And you, there is a point, well, and pain is a whole nother issue, but- Yeah, I wanna get into that. Okay, there, there is um, there is the natural dying, struggle. I will use that, the labor, the struggle. And then there's the struggle that goes beyond what is natural. And so you medicate that which goes beyond the natural. And if you understand how dying takes place and what's going on, then you know the line and you know when to give the medication and when not to. Hospitals tend to, medication's their tool. And so they're not used to not trying to fix something. Well, it's the morphine and I, and I have so many clients and friends who, who had morphine and they were told to administer it to their loved one who was dying because it was going to make the process easier for them the person who was dying, and also for the family. I've heard that too, that it's easier on the family to not see their loved ones suffering. And so on the morphine, it's like it puts them out, uh, the dying person. And and I, I'm sure that's probably a, a perhaps a controversial topic within the hospice care industry, but it's it seems to be a couple of different schools of thought with that, can you address that? I I get I would I would guess I'm not exaggerating when I say at least one or two 
letters, emails from family members a week saying hospice was there. She gave, they gave mom morphine and they killed her. Morphine killed my mom and it's hospice's fault. Now, it isn't hospice's fault, except it's their fault in the lack of education that they gave the family so that the family would understand morphine at end of life, what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. Disease, disease causes pain. Dying is not painful. So when a person is at the end of their life, you're going to look at their disease history. And if they have a disease history of pain, and there's a lot of diseases that people die from that cause pain, then you are going to treat that pain until the person's last breath. Because just because they're in the labor of dying doesn't mean the pain stopped that the disease was causing, okay? So, and plus the body in shutting down, nothing in the body works right. And so you may have to increase the pain medicine because the circulation is not bringing that pain medicine to the body as it would under normal conditions. So again, education, teaching the family about pain management at end of life. Now, there's a lot of diseases that people die from that do not cause pain. And just because a person is dying does not mean they're in pain. What they're experiencing as they approach death, and there's no pain in their disease history, their body feels like it feels when we have the flu. And I'm not talking COVID, I'm just talking ordinary flu, the ache all over, the tired. Um, well, you wouldn't take morphine if you had the flu and you were uncomfortable. You would take a couple of ibuprofen. And that's what you can give as that person is dying if you think they're uncomfortable from the discomfort of just their body shutting down. Doesn't mean you have to pull in morphine. Now, a little side note is that in that labor to dying, again, depending upon the disease process, and how hydrated or dehydrated a person is. You're going to look at their breathing and are they struggling or laboring in their breath? A little itty bitty tiny bit of morphine, and I mean a little bit, will slow down the breathing and make it easier. And so, in those days to hours before death, if congestion and breathing is really labored, then a little tiny bit of morphine is really helpful. It's not going to end life. And I also want to say, I'll hear 
hospice gave mom morphine and an hour later, mom was dead. They killed her. If they gave her morphine and an hour later she died, that morphine is still sitting in her body wherever they gave it to her because the circulation is shutting down and it normally takes 40 minutes to sometimes an hour for us to take some, us healthy people to take um, medicine for it to get into our bloodstream and start doing its work. Well, the person that's dying, they don't have adequate circulation. And so it's going to take a lot more than 40 to 60 minutes for that medicine to get into the bloodstream and actually do something, let alone kill them. Well, and along those lines, please address stopping water and food, number one, and number two, giving them whatever they want to eat. I have so many clients who have a loved one at the end of their lives. And I'll always ask, I can tell how close to death somebody is based on the configuration of how angels and deceased loved ones are surrounding them. And I can scan somebody anywhere in the world. I call it the 12 phases of transition. And I can communicate with the patient telepathically, even if they're not able to communicate with their families verbally. And and they tell me amazing things. You know, what I always ask, are you ready to go? Yet they tell me yes or no. Are you in pain? They'll tell me if they're in pain or not and what hurts. And then I'll say, what do you need? And that runs the gamut from, I need you to file my quarterly estimated taxes, which is one of my favorite stories, to I was working with a family in Greece and the father was dying. He was a retired uh, Navy admiral in the Greek Navy. And he said, I need to talk to my sister. He hadn't been able to communicate in months verbally. He had had a stroke and he couldn't communicate and he couldn't write or anything either. And he said, I need to, I need to um, see my sister. So I was on the phone with his wife and I said, and they're in Athens and I'm in Alabama. And he said, I need to see my sister. So I said to his wife, I said, is his sister close by? He needs to see his sister. And she said, no, she, she lives in Australia. And I said, well, get her on the Zoom or the FaceTime or the Skype. And they did. And he died shortly thereafter. So the, what they need ranges the gamut runs the gamut, but sometimes they'll say, I want a candy bar or I want licorice or I want a fried chicken dinner with mashed potatoes and stuff like that. What it, Talk to us about what to feed, what not to feed, give them what they want. Don't give them what they want. You know, when, when, what happens when you stop food, stop water, that kind of thing. Okay. Well, let's start with months before death. Um, remember the dying process begins two, three, four months before death and three things start happening. One is a person's eating habits change Two, a person's sleeping habits change and three, a person's social interactions change months before death. Think about food. We eat to live. It is the gas we put in our car to make it run. In the months before death, the body will all by itself cut back and stop 
eating. It does it gradually. Months before death, the first thing they stop eating is meat. And then pretty soon it's fruits and vegetables. Then it's anything that requires energy to digest. And this is all on a continuum. And then you get to a place where you can get soft foods, you know, ice cream. We love our ice cream. You can get ice cream almost till the end. Um, but gradually they stop eating less and less. You go to uh, smoothies and um, instant breakfast, those kind of protein drinks. But when labor begins one to three weeks before death, you're really doing good if you can get bites of ice cream and sips of water or Gatorade down them in the, because the body doesn't want it. Now, let's talk about fluids, because in when labor begins, you're just doing good to get sips of water down them. And then I'll hear, well, we better get an IV because we don't want mom to be dehydrated. That would be an awful death. When a person has entered the dying process and they are days to weeks before death, their body's shutting down. And if you start pumping in a lot of IV fluids, then their kidneys aren't working right. And so they're not going to be peeing it out. And that fluid builds up and up and the person drowns to death because the fluid settles in their lungs. That's not a gentle way to die. The gentle way to die is being dehydrated. When you're dehydrated, the calcium in your bloodstream goes up. And when your calcium goes up high enough, you close your eyes, you go to sleep, and you don't wake up. We get an anesthetic and we will sleep through this change from this world to the next if we don't interfere with it with the wonders of our modern technology. So the normal natural way to die is starvation and dehydration. We eat to live and we have to remember the body by itself is trying to let go. And so it doesn't want the food or the fluid. Well, back to the labor example, you know, that baby's coming, whether you want it to come or not, that, that train has left the station when you're in labor and you're birthing. And it, it sounds like it's the same. And how reassuring, because so many people, I think, try and get their loved ones at the end of their lives to eat or to drink something. And the body's just on autopilot. We need to let the body do what it's, what it's engineered to do, really. Let's switch just for a couple of minutes on my favorite side of the dying process, which is the deceased loved ones and spirits and the spirits of deceased pets that come and are there at the end. And it's fun when I'm scanning somebody. It's a fun component with the heartache that comes along with losing a loved one when I can say, 
did your grandmother grow up on a farm? Because there are farm animal spirits in her room. There are horses and pigs and ducks and chickens and things like that, dogs and cats and things like that. And I say, yeah, she did. And I can describe what they look like. I can describe what the family members who've come to greet them are. And oftentimes I'll hear stories about my mother or my grandmother or whomever was talking to her mother who'd been dead for 80 years. And, uh, and we just thought she was hallucinating. I have a, a mom that wrote to me after reading my book and she said, thank you for getting this information out there because my four-year-old little boy, the last week of his life kept saying, mommy, who are all these people? Can't you see all these people in the room? Who are all these people? And she said, of course I couldn't see them, but he could. And she said, thank you for validating that. So what's been your experience in your career with people who were dying, being able to see and or converse with deceased loved ones? Uh, oops, I just hit the microphone. Um, I can tell you stories from now till next week that have convinced me we don't die alone. Um, you know, I believe that my patients have taught me that our loved ones who have died before us come to be with us to help us get from this world to the next. Um, you know, and I can't describe how it happens, why it happens. I just know that in listening to my patients, they have taught me um, that they're seeing something, they're talking to someone. Um, I, I'll tell you a story. My mother was in um, my living room dying, um, took care of her for five months. And in the weeks before she died, I I would listen to her. She's she's in the living room in a hospital bed, talking away. And she says, I see you. I see you looking around the corner. And so you talk to someone who's dying and you they're a window into the other world. You know, who are you talking to? There's an angel looking in the front window. She's out on the porch, but I see her. That angel worked its way from the front porch to peeking in around the door frame to being beside her bed to being on her pillow over the weeks that it took for her to die. You know, I can't explain it, but it was very, very real to all of us that were there. And I can tell you stories like that from now till next week. Please share a couple of other of your favorite stories of that. I took care of a four-year-old. This is probably my favorite story. I took care of a four-year-old. Um, his mother had died two years earlier. His father had died three years before that. He was being taken care of by his maternal grandmother and grandfather. And um, I was there with mom when she died. And then a couple years later, grandma who was and grandpa who were raising the little guy called and said, it's his turn. Uh, we need hospice for him now. And so in the weeks before he died, he started telling everyone, he said, I'm going to take a trip. 
he's actually started collecting money. Uh, he said, I can't live with, said to his grandmother, I can't live with you anymore. I'm going to go live with my parents. The key word was parents because there wasn't a lot of talk about dad. He was considered the bad guy, but there was a lot of talk about mom. So he was, but he was going to go live with his parents. When he was actively dying, we held him in a little room and rocked him in a rocking chair. And he is just laying there, limp little body, eyes partially open. And at some point, he opened his eyes wide and he starts looking around the room. And it's, it's like he's looking for something. You could just, it was like the room was filled with people that we couldn't see. And he's searching this room. And at one point, he raised his hand and he pointed to the upper corner of the room. And he called mom by name and stayed focused on that corner until he died. You know, you can't convince me that mom wasn't there along with many, many others to help him get from the, this world to the next. When patients raise their hands up, which I know is fairly common, there are some schools of thought that they're hugging a deceased loved one's spirit that's coming to greet them. Do you, have you seen that probably countless times? I I have not seen that specific thing. I have seen hands up. I hadn't heard that that's what what um, the belief is. Um, but you know, I, I've had you know I had a woman say the baby. The baby keeps crying, the baby. And finally, uh, one of the daughters said, I had a sister that died as a baby. You know, um, there's just all kinds of, of, um, of stories. And I haven't died yet, but... I will say that people who have had near-death experiences are telling us what it's like to die, and they tell us about all the people that have died before that are there, um, and I hope they're all, and my patients are talking about it, I hope they're all true. Well, I call that the Welcome to Heaven Committee. <laughs> All those spirits that are there to welcome somebody when they're dying. And back to when patients are afraid to die. I do this exercise and teach the people that go through my class how to do this exercise that we call the walk to heaven exercise. And it's kind of like a dress rehearsal of what's going to happen. And when we get into heaven they see all these deceased loved ones that are waiting for them, the Welcome to Heaven Committee. And I can't even tell you, I would say 99.9% .9 of the clients with whom we do the walk to heaven and they're afraid to die, they pass peacefully usually within 24 to 48 hours. It's really a powerful, um, calming exercise for the person who's afraid to die. And I think the bottom line about this, and I back to Dr. Kerr's book, I tease him and I tell him that his science, his research, 
showing that close to 90% of his patients see the spirits of deceased loved ones and deceased pets in dreams or visions as they're approaching the end of their life. I tease him and I tell him I love it when science catches up with woo-woo. Because it's all throughout all the, you know, all the literature, all the holy texts. It's it's just everywhere. And as we've become more well-educated, I think perhaps we've lost some of that that we all knew just intuitively that that's what's happening. And I think it's important to remember too, and that's what his research really validates, grandma is not hallucinating. You know, grandma is actually seeing these deceased loved ones, whether you believe she is or not. So validate that for her. Even if you don't believe it, ask her about it. Say, oh, what is your mother saying? Or what is your, you know, what is your... Uncle Arthur or whoever, you know, what's Dr. Bombay back to the Bewitched TV show? Uh, you know, what's Dr. Bombay have to say to you? And, and, and what are oh, these and people saying? Yeah. Whatever we're seeing. Yeah. We may label hallucinations, but whatever it is, the person is seeing, they're experiencing it and it's real to them. In our mind, it is real and we can label it whatever. And that you don't even have to be dying to have what some medical people would claim as confusion or hallucinations. Um, it's what you're seeing is real. It is real to you. Um, and how it's classified doesn't really make any difference. Absolutely. Well, a couple last things. Number one, how can people get in touch with you? How can they get a hold of your books? I know you're very prolific with your books and your movies. Please share with us how we can learn more about what you have to teach. Okay, you can go to my website, which is bkbooks.com. Uh, where you can preview the DVDs, you can look at all my booklets, um, you can read my blogs. I write a blog every week. Um, and if you go to the website and give me your email address, you can be on the mailing list and you'll get an email saying this is this week's blog and you can click on it. Um, I'm on social media, Facebook, you name all the social medias, I'm probably on it, LinkedIn. Um, and I have people, if you've got questions, concerns, you can email me. I don't do the phone, but I will respond to your email. And that's Barbara at bkbooks.com. I will certainly, you know, that's what I'm on the planet for is to, to help and guide you. And so if I can help you, drop me an email. Oh my gosh. What a, what a, I told you before we got started, you're an earth angel. I think you're an inspiration to all of us. Any passing, any, any last comments that you want to leave with everybody about this whole dying process? I think if, if you just think about end of life every single day, Think about the living that you're doing when I'll share with this. This will be my final. Okay. When I go to sleep at night, before I, I turn out the light, before I close my eyes, I say to myself, 
what have I traded a day of my life for? What have I traded a day of my life for? What is the good that happened in my life today? And I go to sleep with that. It keeps me in touch with the planet. It sends me off into the dream world on a positive note. And life is our what we're here for, to learn, to experience, to love, to feel joy. Um, and we need to remind ourselves that every night. You are a treasure, my dear. You are a treasure to the world. Thank you for all of the work that you do and everything that you've done to comfort people and educate people around the world. Sending you lots of love, everybody. Mwah! From Sweet Home, Alabama and Washington, where Barbara is. I'll, I'll catch up with you next week. We'll have a live show. Thanks for joining us and have a great weekend and a good next week, too. Be sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at Ask Julie Ryan and like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com. This show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical, psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please contact a licensed professional. The Ask Julie Ryan Show, Julie Ryan and all parties involved in producing, recording, and distributing it assume no responsibility for listeners' actions based on any information heard on this or any Ask Julie Ryan shows or podcasts.